Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Welcome to episode 33. Today I'm trying something a little bit different. Um, I realized that it had been a while since I had done a listener Q&A. Usually I like to do those, or <laughs> it's hard to say usually because you know we, there's only 33 episodes, but I had an idea that I wanted to have every 10 episodes or so be listener Q&A because you guys send me really interesting questions and they're sometimes hard to piece together if I want to have a full theme to an episode. So I thought, you know, the theme could be your guys' questions. And that meant I was due on episode 30 for a listener Q&A. But as uh, if you've been listening to the podcast, the last couple of episodes, 30, 31, and 32 were really about sugar and bricks. And that was a long-standing topic that I wanted to talk about, and it really took a lot out of me. Um, not just that, I also had a lot of things change in my in my day-to-day life here in Colombia. My my role has changed, my timeline has changed, but that's not what this episode is about. This episode is about you guys and all of the really cool patrons that support the podcast and send me really cool questions. And I've been sitting on these questions um, from Dr. Back in Thailand for a while, and I wanted to do something um, a little bit more, uh, I don't know, elaborate. And I realized that it had been a while since I had recorded a listener Q&A. And so I thought before I, you know, make too much of a a big deal out of it, I better just sit down and record. And part of that, I don't know if you can hear the colorful sounds of my neighbors playing their music very loudly. Um, It's a Sunday as I record this. So I hope you guys don't mind. I hope it makes you feel like you're with me here in Colombia. And I'm just going to get into it because uh, Dr. Mack has some really interesting questions that I think would be relevant not just to growers in Thailand but to growers you know on some of the the margins of coffee I think we have the maybe traditional areas that we think about in coffee growing in terms of Africa or maybe Colombia where I am or Guatemala Central America but coffee is grown in a lot of different countries and as there's a climate change as we get more technology into varieties I think that the places where coffee can grow are expanding even more. So a lot of the challenges that he's going to, or in the questions that I'm going to be bringing up, are relevant in a lot more places than just Thailand. So dig in and uh, hang out with me to learn some of the challenges of growing coffee in Thailand. All right, question number one. The majority of varietals in Thailand are Katimor, Katwai, and Sachimor. The coffee producers believe it needs fermentation to enhance the flavor because the baseline for these varietals are quite boring. That's not really a question. Uh, It's more of a statement, but I will say that I I absolutely agree. And I think that that's one of the, the conversations or pieces of the conversations that's missing when we talk about fermentation in coffee. Uh, a lot of the times we're speaking too generally and too broadly about just fermentation, the category, and we're not taking into consideration the context. Like for example, what varietal are we trying to ferment? And I think that in my experience, it's been, um, these fermentation techniques of extended fermentation or adding yeast or carbonic maceration, or a lactic process, or acetic process, you know, all of these um, kind of 
uh, newer techniques for fermentation are a lot more successful in the hybrid and, and the newer cultivars because of the problem that he mentions that the cultivars themselves, like the, the main reason for their development has been disease resistance um, and to have a very robust variety. And flavor has sort of been a bit of an afterthought. It's sort of like a bonus, but it's not necessarily the the primary um, focus of developing these these different varieties. So some of these hybrid varieties are much, they lend themselves better to these processes where the process shines a little more brightly than the varietal characteristic. And I think that's, you know, a big part of the conversation, uh, kind of demonizing processing and that it's not pure and that it's sort of covering up the the essence of some of these uh, traditional or heirloom varietals. But that doesn't take into consideration the newer cultivars that are being developed that are just needed for coffee to survive in this climate change disease pressure environment. So in that sense, I think that, you know, fermentation and these techniques are a lot more helpful. And another thing that's really missing in this conversation is, you know, we, we like to think that it's cutting edge and it's newer, uh, newer processing, but there's so much that we still don't know. And there's so much that's still being uh, researched and found out. And one of those things is how well certain yeast strains match with varieties. And this is something that is very well documented, very well known, and very well established in, for example, the wine industry. When I worked at my winery and it was time for, you know, getting ready for the harvest and thinking about what we were going to process and what yeast we wanted to try, there's a catalog that's, you know, a hundred pages long that has all of the yeasts that have been paired up with their varietals. So if I was processing Sauvignon Blanc and I knew I wanted uh, the style, so the style would be like a really bright stone fruit, kind of citrusy, uh, mineral Sauvignon Blanc, then I would just, you know, flip to page 24 and I could see 10 different yeasts that would give me that certain profile and that were matched really well with Sauvignon Blanc. Or if I wanted to produce a Pinot Noir that had a lot of spicy and earthy components, then I would flip to another page and I would see 10, 15, 20 different yeasts that were really matched well with Pinot Noir. In the coffee industry, we are just at the very beginning stages of understanding how to apply yeast to the fermentations, and then even thinking about what yeast pair well with certain varieties. And so and so I think a lot of the times we get stuck on these conversations of, you know, are yeast good or are yeast bad, when the conversation really needs to say, like, well, it depends. Like, are we applying them to heirloom traditional cultivars that are very healthy and very nutrient-dense, and therefore maybe minimal processing lets varietal characteristics shine through, or are we dealing with maybe a newer coffee region that doesn't have such a strong history of growing? And because of that, there's a lot of challenging conditions and we have to use hybrid or more robust varieties. And therefore, you know, leaning a little bit more into processing is very helpful and is, you know, both beneficial for the producer because they get to produce a higher quality coffee and also beneficial for the consumer because we also get to have a little bit more security and stability in the the coffee future in terms of looking for you know new places where coffee can grow so i think that that's just something to keep in mind as you move forward is looking at the varieties that you have and how healthy and how nutrient dense they are 
to see if it would match well with a certain fermentation. And then also um, something that I see that's really common is uh, a producer will try yeast. Again, it's a very broad term. We'll try a particular yeast and they may have some lukewarm results and then they'll think, oh, the yeast didn't work or, you know, yeast in general is not a, a good direction for me without taking into consideration the the strain, the, the style, and if it was well matched with the variety that they're trying to ferment. The example that I often give is, is thinking that you want a, a dog for security and saying, you know, I, I want my property protected, so I want a patrol dog, so I'm going to get a chihuahua. And while those little dogs are fierce and can be very mean, they're not particularly excellent guard dogs. Um, and so you may want to have a German Shepherd or a Doberman to protect your, your property. So it's really unfair to blame the Chihuahua for being a bad guard dog when it's, you know, us, you know, you are the one who chose the Chihuahua as a guard dog. So it's one of those things to think about uh, if, if your yeast fermentation didn't work out to say maybe it wasn't the yeast, it was the certain combination. It was, you know, the, the right idea applied in the wrong way. You know, and another thing I want to mention before we leave uh, this topic of, of the appropriateness of certain yeast with certain varieties is that, you know, yeast, again, is, is a giant umbrella term that is very uh, a very broad category. And then sometimes we think that we're getting specific when we say specifically Saccharomyces cerevisiae. We think that we're maybe drilling down into a breed. But Saccharomyces cerevisiae is a species. And so there's still a lot more specificity beyond that that makes many different uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae strains different from each other. And that a baker's yeast that its whole you know responsibility is to make bread rise that is a saccharomyces cerevisiae and the same one a saccharomyces cerevisiae is also one that's you know fermenting uh, our wine or our coffee but there's still so much specificity within those strains that saccharomyces cerevisiae is a very broad term and so I just want to remind you guys that when, when you're using these words or when you're reading these words, that they're a lot less specific than you think. And there's still a lot of room for differences and nuance between strains of Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Okay, moving on to question number two. The coffee plant are mostly on the hill and have to transport for many hours to the ground for processing. They would like to know how to apply the fermentation knowledge to help them dealing with this problem. So what Dr. Mack is trying to say is uh, it, this is a very common problem, and this is not just in Thailand. I've seen this uh, in many places, and even on the farm that I'm on right now in Colombia, there is one particular farm that it takes several hours when the cherry is picked to come in a truck and arrive at the mill. And one of the misconceptions, one of the things that I've really tried to you know, break our thinking on is that the fermentation is something that only happens in the tank after the coffee is pulped, right? So fermentation is not isolated to when we think the fermentation is happening. Fermentation is happening as soon as there are yeast and bacteria, which again are found in the soil and in the air and on the, the skin of the fruit, and whenever there's a sugar source. So as soon as the coffee is, is picked, there's a little opening at the top when the cherry is removed from, from the stem, and 
yeast and bacteria that are on the outside now have access to some juice and the fermentation process can begin. It's not as vigorous. It's not at the same speed and rate as it would happen in a tank when you have all of that surface area and you're just kind of, you know, primed and you have all that fermentation momentum, all that energy. But it's still starting to happen in a much slower way from the moment the cherry is picked. The opportunity is there for a fermentation to begin. And what happens is that this can also be exaggerated in very hot climates. And when the coffee cherries are put into the sacks and you know there's a lot of weight on top of them, so some of the cherries are getting crushed, they're releasing even more juice, and then they're building up this heat sitting in the back of a hot truck kind of traveling down the road for, for many hours. So many mills, by the time they receive their cherry, they could be, you know, a third, half, you know, or potentially very fermented if if there's a lot of uh, vigorous crushing activity and a very hot climate. So this creates a lot of difference because it's, again, not necessarily bad. It's just something to be aware of that can happen and it creates for very different lots, meaning it's very difficult if you have a good result to replicate it because you can't quite have the coffee um, fermenting in the same way as it's trying to get to you to the mill. So the question is really about how do we get this process under our control because it spends so many hours in transit where the fruit is changing, the flavors are changing, the composition is changing, and we don't really know um, or I guess he's asking, you know, what, what can we do about this? And it's, it's a very difficult problem because not just in Thailand, but like I mentioned in many parts of the world, it, the cherry can be in transit for a long time before it gets to the mill. So one simple, I think simple thing that we can do is reducing that kind of, uh, the wear and tear on the cherries. So in most of the world, cherry is picked in these sacks and these very large, either plastic or jute sacks and then it's transported to to its next location so in these sacks there's a lot of weight from the ones on top to the ones on the bottom creating a lot of this uh, juice that again the more fuel that you have the faster your reaction is going to happen so if there's a way that you can be gentler on the cherries and prevent a lot of that juice you're going to save yourself some of that um, energy and have the fermentation happen in the tank where you want it and where you can control it and where you can repeat it instead of happening in transit on the truck on the way to you and having a lot of that that sugar already be consumed and spent so one of the things that we've done in the farm that i'm uh, working on right now is we've changed to picking coffee cherries in crates and so now the crates are maybe I'd say 40 kilos instead of 100 kilos of weight and these stack on top of each other so even though there's a a crate at the bottom and it's maybe stacked six high it's not feeling the weight of all of those six crates right so if there were if the cherries were picked in the coffee bags it would be feeling you know 240 kilos of weight on it crushing the ones at the bottom but because they're in these crates it's really only those 40 kilos and most of the weight of the ones on top are on the frame of the crates so this is just like a, a simple tweak in transportation and you know most other fruit is picked and shipped in crates because the value is in the fruit and in not you know if you get crushed fruit that arrives at the grocery store, it's pretty useless. So keeping the fruit intact is very important in a lot of other industries. And I think that's a really simple thing that's very often overlooked in coffee is you know having whole sound fruit arrive at the mill.
I think another thing that would help the situation, so if maybe you don't have access to these crates or that's not such an easy change because, you know, whoever you're buying fruit from doesn't want to change and you're just kind of receiving this fruit um, as a mill, one of the things that you can do, and this is where I would definitely recommend the use of yeast for your fermentation because you're getting this fruit from a lot of different sources at a lot of different stages in its... um, in its own fermentation, that once you get it into the mill, if you can apply a very uh, similar process, then even though you're getting all of these variable inputs, your output will be a little bit more consistent. The third factor um, that I can mention for maybe reducing some of this variability and having uh, fruit arrive that's so fermented um, or fruit that's so far along in its fermentation process is to think about temperature. So uh, if maybe you're transporting the fruit in an open truck that's exposed to the sun during its journey, you know, having it covered and in the shade would help in some way cooling that fruit down. Um, Another thing is the timing of the delivery. Uh, I I don't know if I've mentioned before on the podcast, but in the Napa Valley, in the the wine industry, it's very common to pick only at night uh, or, you know, before the heat of the day because we want the fruit to be cool so that, again, the microbial activity really happens at the winery or the mill where we can control it and not in transition. So in Napa, picking would start at 3 o'clock in the morning, and we'd have these giant like football stadium lights to light up the vineyard, and you'd have the workers out there picking from 3 until maybe 8 or 9 in the morning when it you know the sun would come up and it would start to get warm, and that's when picking would stop. Whereas in the coffee industry, we really require the sun because it's a much different um, budget for these industries. But picking happens from nine until, you know, two, three, four o'clock. And so you're picking at the prime heat of the day, prime sunshine of the day, and then packing that coffee. And then it doesn't arrive till at night. And so it's been uh, kind of decomposing all along, all along its journey. So I think that's one of the the lessons that we could learn from the wine industry. Um, you guys have heard me talk about so many things that were not borrowed from the wine industry, but this is one practice that I think could really help coffee quality is kind of reevaluating, if possible, when picking happens and the temperatures that coffee is, uh, the coffee cherry is arriving at the mill. Okay, moving on to question number three. So Dr. Max says, The humidity and rain during the harvest season can cause a big problem for drying the coffee. What is your suggestion, especially if they want to do dry or honey process? I'm currently dealing with that in Colombia where the harvest season is also the rainy season. And the location that I'm at in the mountain is very humid. And at this elevation, we don't have a lot of sunshine or we're, we're also up on the mountain between many mountains. And so our window of sunshine is very limited when we do have sunshine. So it's very difficult to dry coffee almost all year round. So in places like this where it's very difficult to dry coffee because the the natural climate doesn't doesn't help the process, wanting to do a honey process or a natural style processing is, I think, really ill-advised. It's just not, you're just fighting nature. So part of it is like, how much do you want to bang your head against the wall? Some people are super stubborn and they're into that and, you know, they're listening to the market. So they're going to keep going for it. But if you're tired of banging your head against the wall, 
I this is where we really lean into wash process coffees because a washed coffee will dry so much more quickly more consistently than the honey or the natural process. And I think one of the misconceptions, um, another misconception that we often have is that the process makes the flavor, right? So natural tastes that way because of how it was processed. Honey tastes that way because of how it was processed. And it's true, but that's not the full story. For example, regarding the natural processed coffees, we now know that that, um, that process and that flavor profile is highly dominated by acetic acid. So we can take yeasts that are high producers of acetic acid and put those yeast in a tank, inoculate them into a tank, and do a wash process that has a high production of acetic acid that gives you a flavor profile of a natural. And so you can get a coffee that tastes like a natural, that has the body, that has those kind of fruity, boozy, whiny components, and do that in a wash tank, uh, you know, with a 36-hour fermentation instead of leaving it out on a patio for a month to dry. And this is both very powerful for a producer because now you can, you know, process your coffee in a couple days instead of a month. But also it's a much more secure process because the longer that you leave coffee out, let's say you have coffee drying on raised beds or a patio for three weeks or a month, you know, the weather can change. You know, a swarm of insects could come and suddenly want to eat your eat your coffee cherries. And so you're very vulnerable. The coffee is very vulnerable for a, a much longer amount of time in that natural process. And so for me, if you can do it in the tank, it's much more efficient. And the whole point that what the consumers want is that fruity flavor profile that they're used to. So why does it matter how you get there? If you can get there... And it can be, you know, in a natural way, meaning it's still the microbes that are creating that process and it's still that varietal. You know, why do consumers need it to take 30 days when we can make it happen in two or three days? So I just like to remind producers that it's not necessary to go through that entire process to get a particular flavor profile. Um, I really think that it, it's not worth the headache. It's not worth the... Um, the vulnerability of the coffee to even attempt to do honey or natural in an environment that's just, it's not set up for that. So, you know, both reminding producers that it's not necessary, but then also trying to educate consumers. If you love a natural, if you love the flavors of a natural process, there are other ways to get that flavor profile that don't involve that process, that don't make it so difficult for the producer to produce, that, that, the cost of the coffee production can be much lower and you can still get that flavor profile that you want. So I really urge buyers, roasters, um, consumers of coffee to consider what you're asking a producer to do when you're asking for a process that is not fit for the environment. First of all, it's very unlikely that you're going to get the quality that you expect. If you like, you know, naturals from Africa where they've had a long time to nail that process, it's going to be a different result when you're asking a region that's never done this process before. So kind of managing your own expectations of what's possible. Like, you know, producers in these areas do not have a history, do not have the resources generally to know how to process coffee in these methods that are not appropriate for the climate. So when you're coming in and saying, I want you to do it like they do it in Africa, you know, in Colombia, um, just manage your expectations because a lot of the times they may not know how to do that. Secondly, um, realizing that the cost of production can go up because 
maybe you're, you know, a place that has a wash process where they're used to doing a 24-hour fermentation and now they have to leave them on the beds for a month, that is a significant increase in resources in space in labor to move that coffee Um, and additionally there may be another cost in coffee like experimental coffee that was lost coffee that uh, you know it may take several batches it may take several tries to get to that uh, expected quality result but that other coffee still has to be sold so it could create a lot of waste or a lot of you know lost productivity and for me, the most uh, the most important part is that it's not even necessary to go through these traditional processes to get the expected flavor results. So just remember, you know, as a buyer or as a producer, what you're trying to achieve. So look at the end first. Look at the flavor profile that you are trying to achieve, because I promise that there are many ways to get there. There are multiple roads that lead to similar flavor profiles. So the way that I am managing the high humidity, really difficulty drying conditions here in the farm in Colombia, I am not allowing any honey or natural processes to happen here on the farm because it's just too much of a headache, too much uh, vulnerable coffee, and relying heavily on mechanical drying. This is also a topic, a whole other topic for an episode that I will do Another point, drying is incredibly important for quality. It's highly overlooked. It's not as sexy as fermentation. So I think that's part of why we're not talking about it as much, but it's a huge key to consistency, to longevity, and ultimately to coffee quality. And so, yeah, I, I think machines are not particularly popular in the specialty coffee industry because it's, it's just not romantic. It doesn't make as pretty of a picture as raised beds or drying patios, but machines can be very excellent tools. And I think that's the point. It's, it's just a tool. So if something's not working out, if you have had coffee that's been mechanically dried that has not yielded good quality results for you, it may not be the machine, right? Like the machine just does what we tell it. It's it's really in the operation of it and it's in our use of the tool and not necessarily blaming the tool itself. So moving on from drying, just to say that that's uh, coming in to not be afraid of mechanical drying. I'm a big, big fan. Okay, uh, question number four. Someone shared the extended fermentation idea of drying cherries in a room with a humidifier, uh, I think he means a dehumidifier, and an air conditioner to lower the temperature and lower the humidity for 20 days to get fantastic flavors, but it can cost a lot to build a special equipped room. Is there any idea for drying coffee in the tropical country to have a good taste without mold? A lot of what I mentioned in the last in the answer to the last question, where if you're in a tropical country and you have really high humidity, getting these extended drying times of 20, 30 days as you would for a honey or a natural is a fantastic recipe for mold. It is the surest way to get mold in your fruit because you have a high sugar substrate. You have you have something with a lot of high sugar and you have high humidity, and in these tropical regions you have rich biodiversity. It would be shocking to me if mold didn't occur. So like I said, first of all, I don't think that these processes are adequate for these countries unless you do have the infrastructure, the money, the investment to buy machines and equipment. I don't think that there is a way to avoid you know, one or the other. You either don't do it or you do it with air conditioners and dehumidifiers and you know, hermetically sealed rooms to get the coffee to be processed this way. But I feel like that's not even the point. If we look at where we can produce flavor, like I said, we can produce it 
in a fermentation in a concentrated amount of time, we can pulp the coffee, put it in a tank, you know, inoculate with the um, microbes that we want in a standardized and controlled way, and have a 36-hour fermentation, and then wash the coffee and then put it to dry so that you can have the best of both worlds. Like, it's not that you can't process coffee in tropical locations. You absolutely can. But you just have to approach it in a different way instead of using the traditional methods and then trying to like shoehorn a new location into old ways you have to say we're in a new location let's process in a new way so by having a 36 hour or a 48 hour you know pulped coffee fermentation in a tank you can maximize the flavor production and then you wash the coffee so that there's no residual mucilage and then you dry more quickly maybe in six days seven days eight days and therefore you significantly reduce your incidence of mold and you get a lot of flavor development so i hope this makes sense and we can leave this topic and go to question number five okay question number five the fancy process such as carbonic maceration, double anaerobic, etc. are popularized in Thailand right now. There are some academic centers offering processing courses for farmers to join and to learn these processes, but many who have tried it can't get a good result while a minority of them can. The market gives more value to these coffees with these processes and could be a big problem for the farmer. So this is less of a question and more of an observation, uh, but I think it's an important thing to bring up that there's this huge gap. There's a disparity between what the market is asking for in terms of differentiated, you know, specialized coffees and what resources coffee producers and coffee farmers have to be able to produce them. So there's this like really weird dynamic in coffee where the people who are buying coffee have a more sophisticated or a more developed palate for tasting these coffee flavors, and they also have access to much more information. So I think we're taking for granted that just because we like certain coffees or we're looking for certain play- flavor profiles that we're um, chasing or because we're you know bored by our regular cup of coffee and we want to try something um, different or unique, we're taking for granted that producers already know how to do this. And we're taking for granted how much work it involves developing, creating, and then being able to reproduce these certain flavor profiles. And I think the part that is missing is that even as the consumers and even as though, you know, we're the ones who are asking for these types of coffees and as we're popularizing these coffees, we don't realize that there are many roads to get to that flavor profile and we're so focused on the process. We're so focused on the visual that we can see. So my problem with carbonic maceration is, you know, many fold. I've made (laughs) a couple of videos about it. Um, But the main problem that I have with the process is not that I don't think it produces good quality or that I dislike the flavor profile. It's that it takes this theme in coffee of a knowledge gap and a skewed power dynamic, but it's exaggerating it. But it's doing it in this very duplicitous way where it seems like it's empowering farmers, saying, you know, if a farmer can produce this style, we will pay more for this coffee. Uh, But the reality is so many farmers or producers are trying to do these processes and are getting very bad results and are not consistent. And it's a very difficult thing to do. And the ones that can make it, you know, this like unicorn few who get good results and can maybe do it consistently, sure, they're rewarded. But... The trade-off is that so many producers are not able to achieve those results and they're getting left behind in the process. So this um, this process like carbonic maceration, which is 
touted as being able to empower and to kind of, you know, let producers rise above sort of the noise of regular coffee are often being disenfranchised and falling further behind. Okay, and question number six. So then he asks, yeast process is also popularized because a consumer feels like it would be a special process, but most farmers don't have any knowledge and financial support to do that. Is this the answer for improving quality? So I love this question because if you're not paying attention, it may sound hypocritical of me to be uh, critical, to be so um, concerned with processes like carbonic maceration, but at the same time, be such a fan and such a proponent of a yeast process where you can see that they would have similar issues. They would have similar um, barriers for coffee producers where there's very little information and there's very little um, support for them to be able to engage in these newer processes. So I see that. However, the way that I think that they're different is for me, improving coffee quality has 90% to do with improving consistency and repeatability. For me, if there's a 90 plus coffee that happened one time, that is not quality to me. If it's not repeatable, that's a big problem and I don't think that's quality. So my um, criticism of carbonic maceration is that it's a process that exacerbates differences. It's really hard to hit that same result because, well, because of a lot of other reasons that I've talked about in other places. So In a nutshell, carbonic maceration is a process that I think exaggerates the differences in coffee processing, whereas applying a commercial yeast to a fermentation is a way to get consistent and repeatable results. So they have similar origins, they being carbonic maceration and um, yeast-controlled fermentations, where it's, you know, a newer technique, but they work in very different ways. One makes a product more unstable and variable, and the other one reduces that variability and increases stability of coffee, which to me does improve coffee quality. So, you know, the short answer for me to this question is yes, absolutely. I do think that yeast is the way forward for a lot of coffee producers to stabilize the variability, to stabilize all of the inconsistencies from how difficult it is to process coffee in these very variable conditions. So I don't think that commercial yeasts are a silver bullet. I don't think that they're the answer, but I think that it is a very accessible, it's a very simple way for coffee producers who are struggling with inconsistencies and with variable quality to start to stabilize that quality. For this reason, I think that they're it's a different situation than the situation of carbonic maceration or double anaerobic and you know all of the things that um, were mentioned in that question. However, it still stands that there is a huge knowledge gap, uh, information accessibility gap between coffee producers who want to attempt these processes and then the consumers who are wanting to buy these types of coffees and, and taste them. So there's a lot of work still left to be done on you know making information more accessible, just accessible in terms of not so scientific that it's difficult to follow and then also accessible in many different languages because I think that's something that we forget in um, in coffee that there's so many different countries that produce coffee that speak a lot of different languages and that communication can be difficult at times. So what can we do about it? Um, what I try to do is, you know, when I find good information and good sources, I try to share them. And I would love your help doing the same. If you enjoyed this episode or maybe not enjoyed because it was pretty technical and if you don't have a farm it might be a little bit hard to follow this but 
if you think that somebody else might find this information helpful or and maybe help um, untangle some of these concepts in their brain, you know, share it, pass it on. And I want to thank Dr. Mack for being a patron and for submitting these questions for today's episode. And if you're listening to this, you know, we have about 1,500 listens per episode, between 1,500 and 1,700 listens per episode. And this is made possible by the 191 listeners who have chosen to join Patreon and help support this podcast. If you'd like to join us, go to patreon.com slash making coffee. Um, in addition to supporting this podcast because you've enjoyed it, um, you can also have access to a Discord uh, channel where I get to chat with you guys and um, get to ask questions more directly. I've started to include the data sheets that I use. So if you're a coffee producer and you would like to track your data in a similar way, those downloads are available for you. Um, And as always, all of the research that I use for these episodes, all of the original scientific studies are on Patreon for you to download and read the original research yourself. Thanks for joining this week's episode. And remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee.